Good morning, everybody. All right, you can turn in your bulletin or your Bible if you brought one. We're going to be looking at Ruth chapter 2 today. Last week we stood for the reading of God's Word. Today we're just going to stay seated. But you can follow along with me as I read. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one. But keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants." And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness is not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, you are our refuge. And this was true, Lord, in the time of the judges, and it's true today, and it will be true for eternity, Lord, that you are a tower of strength, our shelter. And Lord God, we come before you and ask in Jesus' name that you would reveal to us all that you would have us to know, to increase our faith, our love for you, and how you've loved us in Christ Jesus. And may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, so this is round two of the story of Ruth. And I mentioned last week the context, the time of the judges, and this is a little miniature in the midst of this great portrait of what's going on in a time when everyone did as he or she saw fit, a time of wickedness, rebellion. And we've got in this short story, four little chapters in this story that Johann von Goethe called the most beautiful short story in the world, a picture of God's faithfulness and his redemption. It's a story of God's mission. So this is round two. Next week, we might hit chapters three and four and bring to a conclusion um, this book in a little bit speedier way. But today, round two. And as we, as we prepare to do that, I want us to think of... Um, storms that you've lived through. We're still waiting for a great thunderstorm here um, this, this summer, spring, whatever we're in. But when, when my kids were little, we lived in Iowa, and we had this pretty massive storm. It was one of those storms when the sky turns green, everything gets still. And we lived in a parsonage, and it was made a brick parsonage, and so it was really safe. But one night, the sirens started wailing, and we hightailed it down to the basement. The kids were wee littles, and so we brought down animal crackers, some sippy cups, and, and flashlights, and we hid out in the basement. We wanted to get somewhere safe, right? The sirens are going. We were all freaked out. The kids were, had this mixture of terror and joy. But the kids were champs. They, uh, they saw all this happening and the sirens and the, the dark sky, and they're thinking, this just got real, and, but, but we're secure in our basement. We're safe. It's cozy. There's no windows. We're a little alcove beneath the stairs like Harry Potter, and, 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 and we could kind of hear the wind starting to blow even over the sirens, and it took us about 30 seconds down there when one of our kids, Brennan, he was probably four at the time or five. He's like, we've waited long enough. Let's go. Check things out. And so we, we hustle up the stairs and we look outside and it's even that crazier green color that you have and the wind is blowing and the trees are, are shedding branches and leaves. And so again, we hightail it downstairs, refuge, safety, it's going to be okay. And Marcel is holding on to Kiana. Kiana was just a wee baby back then, holding on to her. Kiana was freaked out. But we felt safe, and we actually felt braver that we could go upstairs periodically to scope things out because we knew we had a refuge to go to. So I want to share with you another kind of storm. That's like a physical storm, right? A natural storm. Another storm is this. There was a little girl who grew up um, with her older brother and her parents in a farm in northwest Iowa. And uh, they were church-going, hard-working family. And when this little girl was about four years old, the abuse started from her brother and even her parents. And she was compromised in ways that I can't really even comprehend, uh, and I don't want to. She lived with that for years, for years. She had nowhere safe to go. Every day, every year was a storm. 
There was fear, anxiety, later anger, confusion. And there was nobody to hold her tight and say, it's going to be okay. Nobody there to comfort her. And I imagine her, this little girl, thinking, will there ever be a safe place for me? And then not being able to answer that question. And I think that leads us again to this time of the judges when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The story of Ruth is this story of God's mission in the midst of that historical context to rescue the lost, even with the backdrop of evil, wickedness, rebellion going on. And we saw last week how God takes this Moabite woman, Ruth, and brings her to Israel during this time of wickedness. And the question that we were left with, the cliffhanger of sorts, was would the people of Israel take care of her? Would Israel be a refuge for her? Would she find safety there? Or would she be devoured in the carnage during this idolatrous time? What portrait, what miniature would God paint in this landscape? So that was a question last, last week. And as the story continues, Ruth and her mother-in-law, they arrive in Israel at the start of the barley harvest and were held in this tension. What's going to happen to these two women? Will someone in Israel obey the commands of God and help them? Because God cares for the widow and the orphan, the poor, the alien. And because God cares, his people are called to care as well. And in that, God has given the people of Israel his law. His law, which shows the people how to care for the poor and how to imitate him. So in chapter 2, as we read through this, you maybe caught a word that came up again and again, glean or gleaning. We see that a lot. It comes up 12 times in chapter 2 alone. And this harkens back to God's law given to Israel. And I just point out one instance of it. It's in Leviticus. You don't have to turn here with me, but Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. And this is a part of God's law that he gives to the people of Israel. He tells them, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your Vineyard, vineyard, you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And we see it again later in Deuteronomy 24, this mercy to the poor, to the alien, the foreigner. The beautiful laws of God's mercy and kindness. These are moral laws to be obeyed. And we have to look at God's law always as a floor to be filled up. So this floor of God's basic minimum requirements, this is how we should then live, what he requires of God's people, both in the time of Ruth and in our day. And we then are to ask ourselves, okay, here's the basic minimum requirements. How do I fill up the floor of this law and imitate the beauty of God's character, of his love, grace, and kindness? And so as we think about gleaning and what was going on, this is a farming story from 3,000 years ago. Well, let's think about how harvesting would go back in those days. If you were going to harvest according to what God's law would dictate, you would harvest about two-thirds of your crop. I mean, you would, you would uh, harvest all of it, but you would l- only take two-thirds of it. You would leave a third. And we think of this work. It's hard, back-breaking work. There's no combines or tractors, of course. It's just muscle and elbow grease. And this third left over after the harvest was to be left for the poor. 
so they could glean. They could come and they could pick up what's been harvested but left behind. It's not taken by the owner of the farm. And, and we have to remember that the people who are in poverty, who don't have anything, who don't own any land, who don't have any crops, they are completely dependent on these farmers, these landowners. And, and we also remember the context. It's a day of evil and wickedness. And I'm going to get mine. So we can see the danger for those depending on mercy in those days. Oftentimes, it wasn't found. All right. So would the people of Israel obey the law? Now, as we think about the law, big, big topic, right? And if we look back to the reformers, and even if we'd go back to the fourth century in St. Augustine, but if we look to like Calvin and Luther, they would present three uses of the law. And the first is we always look at the law, God's law, his moral law, like a mirror. We hold it up to our faces, and the law reflects God's perfect righteousness, his character, and our lack thereof. Second, the law restrains evil by making us dread. Yeah, there's consequences for the law. In the New Testament, we see that in Romans 13. That's why the state has certain power. The third use of the law is to reveal what's pleasing to God, what's good, what's beautiful, what's true. And the law of God is good. And I, I, I say this a lot, and I forgot if I mentioned this last week, but sometimes as both Christians and non-Christians, we think of God's law. God is just a killjoy, a cosmic killjoy. He doesn't want us to have fun. And there was an old mid-20th century um, uh, public intellectual, H.L. Mencken, who said he used Puritan, Puritanism, but I always insert Christianity. Christianity is the fear that someone somewhere may be having a good time, right? It's like, no, that's not the way it is. God's law is beautiful and it's good because God is the source of all that's good and beautiful and true. And so just as an example, God's law is good? Yeah, Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is just. It revives the soul. It makes wise. It brings joy. It enlightens. It's sweeter than honey. So this third use of the law, instructing, guiding Christian believers, should be our joy. It should be our delight to look at, okay, God, what, what do you require of me? Oh, this? How can I fill up the floor of this law, this basic minimum requirement? How can I fill that up in where you've placed me and in the people that you've put me around? How can I do that? How can I delight in your law? And then out of gratitude for your grace towards me, you're calling me a child, you're redeeming me by the blood of Jesus. How can I then be a blessing to other people? And love them well. So the Christian sees God's commands as beautiful. And in response to God's grace, we yearn to fill up the treasure store of God's righteousness. All right. So the question stands as we're back in Ruth here. Who will fill up the floor of God's law and live out the righteousness of God? So in Ruth 2, we're introduced to a new character. And like last week, we talked about names mean something in this story. Well, Boaz is our new character. And, okay, Malon, Ruth's old husband, his name meant something. It meant sickly, weakling. It's a rough name. Boaz's name, it, it has as its root this um, strength and, and, and more specifically alacrity, which means like a, an eagerness, a readiness a cheerfulness, a liveliness. 
And we're, so that's a good sign. And we're told that he's a relative of Elimelech. And we're like, all right, he's an Israelite. And uh, Elimelech's name means God is king. So, but Elimelech left um, Israel and went to Moab. So we don't really know. Is, is, is Boaz a good guy? Not so good a guy? Is he faithful? Our first hint is that he's described as worthy. It's looking good. Might be some hope here. And we read that Ruth and Naomi just happened. They just happened to arrive at the start of the barley harvest. And that Ruth just happened in verse 3 to come to find herself in Boaz's field. And, and this is the author's use of irony. Just happened that way. Wait, so the, the writer of Ruth doesn't believe in God's sovereignty? It was just lucky Ruth? No, it's kind of like this. Marcel and I, my wife and I, we just happened to meet at church, ice cream social, library, weight room. You can pick one of those three. One is much worse than the other, and that's the one that actually we met. But we just happened to meet there. We just happened to know the same people who set us up. It just happened. Seems totally coincidental. But it was God's sovereignty, his providence, God's hand clearly moving, orchestrating, drawing, painting this composition. And so we have here this introduction to change in Ruth chapter 2. We've got, we had bad news, bad news, bad news, a little uncertainty. But then, okay, Boaz, is he going to be the one? Will he be the one to obey God's law? And his first words give us a clue. The Lord be with you, he says to the people that he works with. And with a brushstroke, God paints him in a good light. His household responds, the Lord bless you. Again, maybe this is the obedient Israelite. And he asks then about Ruth, and his hired hand tells him. And in verses 8 through 10, Boaz offers this good news. When you're thirsty, drink. Now, for us, 3,000 years later, having the full corpus of Scripture, yeah, drink freely. Well, that should remind us of a few things. Maybe Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. Or we could even think of the New Testament, John chapter 4, Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at the well. This, this water I give you, drink it and you'll never thirst. Drink deeply of God's grace. It's satisfying. Boaz in verse 14 offers more good news. Come and eat. Again, Isaiah 55, you who have no money, come, eat. It's free. In John 6, Jesus says to his disciples, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. Grace. Grace given to Ruth before Jesus, God showing his grace through the people of Israel, through this person, Boaz, to this Moabite, this foreigner woman. And how does Ruth respond to such grace? I think she does what what everybody does. When they understand the gospel, you bow down. You bow down. Ruth can say in verses 10 and 13, I have nothing to offer. I'm a foreigner, an alien. I'm not even worthy to be called your servant. And yet, and yet, you would show this kindness to me? Boaz, he knew the beauty of God's law, and he asked, how do I live out the intent? Not just the, the, the letter of the law, the bare minimum. How do I live out the intent of the law? And so we can see then in, in his actions, Boaz is not thinking about what's ac- economically advantageous to him. 
Instead, he's eager, ready to go above and beyond, to be extravagant, abundant. I'll provide. I'll protect. He has this concern for Ruth's safety. Stick close to me. Stick close to my people. It's safe. You will be cared for. You will find shelter from the storm in this midst of this wicked generation. My favorite part of the story is in verses 15 and 16. Think of this. He tells his, his family, we do the work. Make sure she gets the reward. That sounds like somebody I know. I'll do the work, you get the reward. Somebody who takes our lowly condition, sacrifices for it, and in return gives us a reward beyond our imagining. That's Jesus. Christ died that we might live. Jesus did the work. We get the reward. Now, Boaz isn't Christ, but through his obedience to God, he imitates the character of God. And in that, Ruth finds refuge. We can even say salvation. So, Boaz. We need to find somebody. Boaz in chapter 2, he's a good dude. That, that, that's the literal Hebrew. He's a good dude. He's a faithful follower of God. And the author's intent is that he's presented as a true follower of God. And he lives out the characteristics of God's grace and mercy, mercy to Ruth. And for Ruth, it's acceptance. Yeah, I'm an alien. I'm poor. But you're going to care for me. Such humility she gives. And again, we look forward and, and think of maybe Peter's words in, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 5. God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. This is a reminder for us. We don't come to God and say, listen, I'm basically a pretty good person, but yeah, I probably got some issues. No, we come to God with nothing. We're poor, foreigners to heaven. By our own volition, enemies of God are actions. And God in his grace and mercy says, no, you can find a refuge in me. I'll receive you. I'll accept you. And, and we, we bow down. He says, no, I actually, I don't deserve that. No, we don't. We don't. We come to God with pure, spiritually impoverished need. And we ask, can I glean among the great harvest? And he says, yeah, I'll satisfy you. Verses 17 and 18, look how much Ruth gleans. An ephah. That's about 20 to 25 pounds of barley. And, and think of that. She, she comes home after this time with Boaz, and she presents this to Naomi. And what is Naomi's reaction, right? So you've been to Costco, right? What, what, this is going to last us for weeks. Naomi can't believe it. She can't believe that it just happened that Ruth found herself in this relative's field. There is a redeemer, verse 20. There's hope. And the chapter ends in verse 23, saying that Ruth gleaned until the barley harvest was over. It's about seven weeks. Good, complete number. This story of Ruth, again, is about God's mission to save, and it's the story of Boaz and his kind treatment of Ruth, this portrait of beauty amidst apostasy. And this is our calling, too. So the question, just like last week, what miniature is God painting in your life? What miniature is God painting in your life where you seek to walk in God's way and portray his beauty 
to those around you? How can we fill up the floor of God's law? Remember that little girl I started the sermon with, a little four-year-old girl? When she was in high school, she met a boy and started to date him. He was a, a nice boy. And this young man, he treated her with honor and respect. He uh, listened to her. He loved her well. Um, one of my favorite writers is Flannery O'Connor. She wrote a short story called A Good Man is Hard to Find, and that's true. But this was a good man. And this girl, she found a shelter from the storm in this boy. They've been married now for uh, over 50 years. It's my mom and dad. And it's an extraordinarily ordinary love story. Nobody's writing books about them, him, their love, their marriage. It's not perfect, but dad took her under his wing, protected her, loved her well, and, and she was a refuge for him as well, in a way. And there was redemption, simple love story, ordinary by the standards of this world. Speaking of uh, ordinary love, maybe thinking about the portraits you're painting in ordinary ways. We talked last week about tucking your kids in bed at night and praying with them or calling your folks and visiting or, or taking your spouse out on a date or maybe holding on to a loved one who's scared in the middle of a, a storm the way that Marcel did to Kian in our basement when the storms rage. Coming close to that other person, putting your arms around them, sheltering them from the storms. They're really, they're all around us. It doesn't take a thunderstorm. It doesn't take abuse. They're all around us. But it's coming close to other people in simple ways and loving them. Friends, ultimately the story we're going to see next week finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus ultimately is our refuge. So if you haven't before, and you're thinking about, man, this is a wicked generation, and I've got a past of abuse, and I've, I'm scared of the storms that are swirling all around me, you can find refuge in Christ. He knows you. He loves you. That may be a really hard one to even think about. There, there's nothing in me to love. That's a great place to start. You can come to Christ in all of your spiritual poverty and say, Lord, let me harvest. Let me find refuge with you. And you'll find it. You'll find it. Drink freely of his mercy and grace. Let's pray together. Lord, throughout this service, we, we've continually pointed back to you. <laughs> uh, of course we should, because, Lord, um, you are the source of all that's good and beautiful and true. And, Lord, um, we have a hope. We are a people who we don't despair. We know that there is a refuge in Jesus. You provided the way, Lord, and, and we are loved beyond what we could ever imagine. So, Lord, would you bless my brothers and sisters in Christ who know you, that, their, that our faith would be increased. And for those who don't know you, Lord God, would you, by the prompting of your Holy Spirit, speak life and hope and peace into their hearts and be a shelter from the storm for them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.